real humor of that clip, the solicitor is actually the attorney who is reading that will to the family. And so I don't know how much that estate was worth. Uh, I take from the reactions of the people that were there, the family that was there, that they uh, were uh, expecting something very different. They were expecting the state that seemed to be worth a lot uh, to inherit part of it. And they seemed excited about being included in this will until the actual started reading of the will. And then they found out what the man who wrote the will actually thought of them and uh, what he kind of was expecting to give them. And, and so they, they were definitely expecting things to go very differently than what they did when the actual reading of the will started. And to be honest with you, most wills are handled, and most estates are handled re- relatively quietly. And uh, the, most of the time, and unlike Hollywood, there's really not this dramatic, um, shocking uh, picture of this that happens that most of the time, there's not even this official gathering of the family for the reading of the will in some deep, dark lawyer's office that uh, has been top secret for all these years. And, uh, and I'm sure there, there are situations where that happens. I'm sure there are situations where the will does contain some secrets, but by and large, most wills are not secret. Most of them, um, people know about them. People somewhat know um, actually kind of what is in them. Maybe not all the details in them, but they, they kind of know what's in them before the actual person's death. And so there's really not all these unexpected surprises. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to find that the, the will of Jesus Christ is similar to that, that there's not surprises. We get a, kind of this look into it uh, to see what's in this will uh, from Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 15. And as we continue walking through this book, and especially this section of the book, uh, we find this kind of shift of argument going on. And uh, so you guys that have been with us. Um, you, you've kind of walked through this with us, and he, he started several chapters ago kind of presenting this historical approach that, that you should trust the the priesthood of Jesus because it's of its historical value, because it really outdates and predates the Levitical priesthood, uh, the priesthood that Israel was currently under at this time. And uh, then he kind of shifted from that to more of a practical approach to it, that, that the serving Jesus, or excuse me, uh, following Jesus in his priesthood, serving in a heavenly sanctuary, makes more practical sense for us than following the priest who serve in this earthly sanctuary. There's far more benefits to serving or following him and his ability in the heavenly sanctuary than these earthly priests following in this earthly sanctuary. That honestly, I don't know if the author knew it at this time, but within a few years, that temple was going to be destroyed anyway. And so in all these chapters before this, Jesus or the author has been telling us why Jesus is better. Right? Why is he a better priest? Why is he a better covenant? Why is there a better sanctuary? All of these why questions. Why is Jesus honestly better than any other approach you've tried to to get to God? Now that may not be a Judaism. That may not be a, a different faith. But whatever it is, whatever you're doing to try to get God, to get back to God, or try to connect with God... What he's been telling you throughout all of these chapters, all the way up through chapter 9, is Jesus is the better way. In fact, he's going to tell us today, make it clear, he's the only way to get back to God. And so what we really need to do is abandon all these other approaches that we've tried to do to get to God, whether it's through a faith or works or whatever it is, and really focus on Jesus because he is the better way. And so he's been telling us why that's the case. And then he shifts to, to answer these kind of how questions. How does this work? We know Jesus is better. We know that that we should follow him. But how does that work? 
And for you and me sitting here, we don't really wrestle with this question as much as the folks who were reading this letter for the first time. Because for them, they grew up in a different faith. And some of you may have grown up in a different faith. And for them, this is what they were used to. They understood, if I sin, there's a sacrifice. And that sacrifice has to happen this way. And they've seen this thing played out over and over and over again, year after year after year, day after day after day. And so they kind of understood the nuts and bolts of the Jewish faith. They understood the how of the Jewish religious system. But then all of a sudden they're presented with Jesus, and some of them have become followers of Jesus, and they just quite haven't wrapped their mind around how this works. How's the forgiveness that I was getting over there, how does it work in this system? How does the sacrifices that were going on over there, how do they translate into what Jesus has done? And really, how does our connection with God over there, how does it fit with my new connection with God over here? And so he really starts in chapter 9, really in verse 15, kind of changing his style, taking this more legalistic or legal approach of answering these how questions. And so I want you to imagine with me for just a moment as we read through this text, I want you to imagine that, that you and I have been called into the lawyer's office and, and we are the people sitting on the other side of the desk. And we're going to read through kind of the will of Christ in, for just a moment. So I want you to grab your Bibles and, and read with me Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the new, or excuse me, under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never enforced while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when each or when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. Finally, verse 22, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you that we have reasons to praise, reasons that go far beyond us, and reasons that go far beyond our feelings, and reasons that go far beyond our emotions, and reasons that go far beyond the weather outside, God. God, that if we had nothing else just to have you would be reason enough. God, if we had nothing else, if everything that we held close and dear in this life was taken away from us, God, you would still be a reason enough to praise who you are. God, if the cross was all we could cling to and everything we knew in this life was stripped away from us, Except the cross alone, God, we would still have sufficient reason to praise you this morning. And so, God, I pray this morning that we cling to that cross. God, I pray this morning that we will join with brothers and sisters across this state and really across this world who, God, their only hope is through the cross of you this morning, Father. So, God, I pray that as we read your text this morning, I pray that as we work through this passage this morning, God, we answer some of those how questions of how does this work for us, and 
God, for some of us, we've come to the understanding already of why we need to follow you. And we're just trying to wrap our logical mind around this. How does all of this fit into place? And so, God, wherever we are at this morning, whether here or whether online, God, wherever we are at spiritually this morning, God, I pray that you speak to us. God, that you will meet us where we are at. And God, whether it's a, a why question we're facing, whether it's a how question we're facing, I pray that we find its answers here in your word this morning, Father. So, God, I pray above all else that you will speak. God, that we will listen. And we will hear your word this morning. Not just hear it with our ears, but with our heart and our mind engaged to you, Father. So, God, I pray that you speak. I pray that we listen. God, most of all, I pray that we are transformed by the words that you have for us this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, uh, many of you know that my mother passed away. And uh, when she did that, uh, I and my brother learned a whole lot kind of uh, through some hard things about wheels and estates and, and really the need for kind of estate planning. And uh, this was something that neither one of us had done before. Neither one of us had really any experience at all. And, and honestly, we were both very unprepared for it. And this is going to sound like a shameless plug, but it fits perfect just because God's timing is perfect. That's part of the reason I'm so excited about the uh, estate planning workshop that we're offering through the, um, the North Carolina Baptist Foundation um, this coming Saturday. And so I find God's timing just amazing because months ago we planned this workshop and I didn't have any idea that, that I was going to be on this text on the Sunday before that, that workshop. And so I, I share that with you because the reason I want to uh, have that workshop is is to help families uh, deal with, with what my brother and I had to deal with. And if you've ever been through the loss of a loved one, you know there's just a whole lot that happens in, in a real short amount of time. I mean, we were, we were kind of bombarded with um, trying to make arrangements of, of funeral arrangements. We were kind of bombarded with uh, contacting some, some relatives and even some relatives that re lived in different states. And, and then through all that, still having to try to grieve and find time and space to grieve the loss of our mom. And, and, and then there was all these other questions that just kept popping up. There were all these like, practical steps like what is what's the practical steps that we need to do to make her arrangements and and then there were the legal steps like what are the legal steps that we happen that happen now that she's passed like we we kind of had things up to now and now that she's passed what's the legal steps that happen next and then there was the financial steps like what do, what do we do now with with the assets that she had and what do we do now that the bills are still coming because i don't know if you know this or not bills don't stop when you die all right some of you may knew that some of you didn't know that uh, and here's another secret for you. Taxes, you don't get out of them when you're dead either, okay? Uncle Sam's going to get his share whether you're dead or alive, all right? So, so we had all of these questions of, of how all this works and, and what are our next step. And now, unfortunately, uh, we knew, or excuse me, now, fortunately, we knew that, uh, we knew that our mom had a will and, and we knew where that was at. And we kind of knew before she passed some of the logistics of her will. We didn't know all of the details, but we, we knew kind of what was in there and, and just because of conversations we'd had beforehand. And I remember uh, my brother and I sitting down at our, uh, our counter in the kitchen that we both grew up in. And my parents had lived in that same house uh, since before my brother and I were born. And we grew up in that same house and we'd never moved. And I remember sitting down at that counter and me and my brother sitting next to each other and having this, this piece of paper there. And I remember reading over that wheel for like the very first time. And, and I knew, kind of like I said, I kind of knew what was going to be in it. But all of a sudden, this was real. 
Like this was, this was a serious thing now. And I remember sitting there reading this wheel with him, and it started off, I imagine, I, I, I don't have a lot of experience with wheels, but imagine, I imagine it started off kind of like all wheels do, like her name and being a sound mind and body, and this is what she wants. And so I imagine all that is kind of like, if you have a wheel, I imagine it probably starts the same way. And so we read through all that stuff that really didn't make sense to us, and then we kind of got to the next section, and it got a little more personal because it wasn't just her. This, was, this got personal because all of a sudden it was my name, in there and my brother's name in there and and so my mom had listed my brother and I as co-executors of her estate now I'm going to be honest with you we grew up in Stokes County and we don't use words like executors in Stokes County and and so I'm going to be honest with you like I had a a faint idea of what that was but I didn't really we didn't speak legal jargon growing up and so I wasn't quite sure of of what that meant And, and really my concern was I don't want to mess this up because people go to jail for this kind of stuff. I've seen this on TV, and I don't want to go to jail. So I want to make sure that, that I'm doing this thing right. So what is my job as this executor of the estate? What does this term mean? And so, honestly, I, I did the, the obvious thing. Like, I Googled it, and that's what you do when you don't know what the answer is. And, and so that's probably a terrible way to find out legal advice, just to be honest with you. But that's what I did. Like, I Googled this word. What is an executor's job? What is their role? And so there were, of course, all these answers that popped up. And uh, what I found out was that my job and my brother's job was really to make sure that the terms that were written on this piece of paper were carried out. That, that the wishes of my mom that were spelled out on this piece of paper, that they actually happened. And, and so by naming us as co-executors, it meant that we were really her personal representatives in all financial and legal matters from this point on. And so if there was a debt that needed to be paid, it was our responsibility to make sure that was paid. If there was some legal dispute or, or some, some um, um, disagreement that happened, it was our job to make sure that this document was carried through. And so we had to kind of settle that um, either between ourselves or between another party or whatever it happened in that dispute. And so almost every wheel starts off with that same kind of thing of here's who I am and then here's who's in charge. This is the person who I'm handing everything over to once I pass. And so the will of Jesus really kind of does the exact same thing. In verse 15, it names him as the executor of the estate. Now, it's kind of odd to name yourself as the executor of the estate, but it's the will of Jesus, and it can be a little different. So um, he is the one in charge. And so it started back in chapter 8, talking about this new covenant that happens. And so in chapter 8, he argues from this historical point, even going back to the a passage in Jeremiah. And then in chapter 9, he starts this legal standpoint and these how questions. And he, he calls it by a different title. But in verse 15 of chapter 9, I want you to look with me. He says, therefore he, talking about Jesus, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So what he's telling you, and I know there's a lot of church language in there, there's a lot of confusing language, but what he's telling you is a death has happened, and so we need someone who's going to step in and someone who's going to be in charge of this covenant, of this agreement that's happened. All right, And so the writer refers to Jesus, and he tells him the mediator, and so he's the legal go-between for this wheel. He's the, the legal connection between the first covenant and this second covenant, this new covenant that's mentioned here at the start of this verse. And uh, some of you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of a covenant being an agreement. 
And so there were really uh, two different levels of covenants and two different levels of agreements. Even to this day, there's kind of two. Um, and so there's, there's the first kind of agreement that's between two equals, like a business transaction, a business partnership. And so with a business partnership or this kind of equal uh, footing for an agreement, there's a lot of negotiation that takes place. There's a lot of give and take that happens, right? Believe it or not, your marriage is this kind of covenant with each other. There should be give and take within your marriage of, hey, I'll do this, you do this, and I'll do this, and you do that. I'll agree to this, and you agree to that, all right? That, that should happen in a normal, healthy marriage, okay? So your covenant marriage is between two equals. Everybody hear me say that, right? The, that is where you're at, is between two equals. Now, there's also another type of covenant, and this covenant is different. It's not between two equals. It is between a superior party and an inferior party. And the difference between that covenant and this covenant is the terms of this covenant between a superior and inferior party, these are not negotiable. Right? You don't get to, you, there's no give and take in this relationship. There is, here's the terms. You either accept them or you reject them. You don't get to say, hey, what about this? Maybe this. I like this idea, but I don't like, no, here it is. It's either for you to pick up and sign or it's for you to walk away from. Right? And that's the kind of covenant that we find in this passage of Scripture. In fact, I'll tell you that because two different Greek words describing those two different types of covenants. And so this one, between a superior God and an inferior human race, that His creation, that's the kind of covenant we're talking about. And so why is that important for you and me? Because it tells me, as the inferior party, I don't get to negotiate the terms of this contract. I don't get to negotiate the terms of this agreement or this covenant. Right? It's not for me to do. Right? Over there I could, but I'm not God's equal. And if you do claim to be God's equal, we've got a whole different story we can talk about about that. Okay? But we are not God's equal. So we don't get to stand here and be like, you know, God, I was reading over this whole New Testament thing, and I was reading over this covenant that, about Jesus coming to die and, and Him being the way, the truth, and life. And God, that really seems kind of exclusive. Like, I really, I really kind of feel uncomfortable. Like, I kind of feel like you're leaving people out when you put those lines that they have to come through Jesus to get to you. And, and so what if we talk about this a little bit, God? What if, we, what if we said, hey, Jesus is a way and he's a good way to heaven, but what if we allowed some other ways? What if we allowed, you know, those people that were really sincere Jews, what if we allowed them to come to you too? Well, then there are some folks that are really good Muslims, and what if we allow them to come too? And, and honestly, God, there are some people that they don't, they're just not church people. They just, they're not religious people. Yeah, they probably don't have a Bible, and, and, but they're really good people. And so why don't we just let them come in too? And so all of a sudden we find ourselves trying to negotiate all of these other people in all of these other ways and all these other options to get into where God has said, this is the covenant. And when we do that, we have elevated ourselves to the place that we are equal with God or we have pulled God down to where He is equal with us. And we don't get to do that. We don't get that option. The language itself doesn't allow us to do that. And also our view of God does not allow us to do that. This is non-negotiable. We don't get to look at God and say, hey, how about a different option? What if I just work really hard and I do church really well and I do Bible study really well? What if I just do all this stuff really well and, I, and God, yeah, I'll bring Jesus with me, but what if I have Jesus plus this? What if I have Jesus and all of this other stuff? Like, Does that give me bonus points? And God says, this is the terms. You either accept it or you don't. I want you to just look back what he said in verse 15. He is the mediator. 
There is only one mediator. There is not lots of options. There are not seven billion people that have seven billion ways to heaven on earth. It doesn't work that way. We don't have all of these options. We have pretty clear right here. There is one offer on the table. There is one covenant, and this one covenant has one mediator. He is the only way back to God. He's the only go-between. He's the only peacemaker. He's the only reconciler but that we have. And so the terms of the agreement are non-negotiable. He and he alone is the executor of this estate. He sets the terms and the limits, and we don't get to negotiate them. We don't get to say, hey, when we get to heaven, walk up and be like, hey, I was a really good person. It's not going to matter. The terms where you come through Christ or you don't come at all. And so when we get here it's not a matter of negotiation and do I have enough good versus bad and have I lived a good enough life. It is simply what did you do with Christ? This is the terms of the conditions. This is the term of the contract. It is not for us to negotiate. It is simply for us to accept wholeheartedly, fully, 100% or to reject. And that is the only option we have. We take all that He gives us, that Jesus died for our sins, that we are sinners, that we are in need of salvation, that He died for our sins, and that we live our life through Him and with Him and for Him, or we walk away from it. That's it. And when we walk away from it, there's no coming back to it. We don't get part of the contract. We don't get to, to pick out parts that we want to take with us. No, to walk away and to reject this covenant, to walk away and reject this agreement, is to fully turn our back and say, I don't want anything to do with that agreement at all. I don't want any of the benefits of it. I don't want any of the grace that comes with it. I don't want any of the mercy that comes with it. God, I don't want any blessings that you would give me whatsoever. And so all of a sudden, our idea, idea of this exclusive God who, who paints this small picture of heaven really doesn't become so exclusive because what He gives you at the end of your life is exactly what you ask for. You either ask to be in this covenant or you ask to be totally left out of it. You either ask to be in this agreement with Him and live with Him forever or you ask to be separated from Him, which includes all the blessings and all that there is. And for some of us, we can't even imagine life without the blessings of God. Why? Because every day there are blessings of God that we take for granted. Every day the air that you breathe is a blessing from God that you take for granted. Every day you wake up and there's a house and there's a roof over your head. It is a blessing from God. Every day you wake up and you don't hear gunshots or military fire going off over your head. It's a blessing from God that some of our brothers and sisters this morning, they're not getting to, to that privilege this morning. We take it for granted far too often. And so the simple question is, are we going to accept the terms and conditions of this contract? Or are we going to walk away and then get exactly what we asked for? Because I've got to tell you, when you walk away from it, you're giving up the assets that come with it. And we're going to talk about those in just a moment. But I can promise you, the assets that he gives you are very much worth submitting to him as both Lord and King of your life. Several years ago, and I had an opportunity. I was trying to help a family make some arrangements for a loved one that they had lost. And this, this person had died, and they were trying to make arrangements and kind of what a lot of families go through and trying to figure out how all this works. And this, this one was a little different. There were some different circumstances and with the death and different circumstances within the family. The situation was just a little different. And so I, I, try, I was trying to help them in any way that I could. All right? And so one of the things that I was going to try to help them do was run the obituary in the newspaper. 
And so they gave me all the information, and I got to proofread it and check it and make sure that it sounded right. And then I was going to be the one who, who took it over the newspaper or emailed it to the newspaper. And so I called the newspaper, and I said, hey, my name is Pastor Michael Rakes. I'm the pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Cleveland. So I told them who all I was, and, and I said, I need to know who I can submit an obituary to. Who can I contact uh, to find out the cost first, and who do I pay, and then how do we, how do we get this obituary into the paper? And so the lady was very nice, Sue. She answered the phone, and she said, well, thank you so much for calling us and thinking of us, but I can't take your obituary. And I said, well, it's not my obituary. I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? It's, it's an obituary for a family. I'm just helping them get... And she said, that, I can't take it from you. And I was almost a little offended at that point because I was like, okay. Um, so I understand this is odd over the phone. So can I come down there? Can I bring my ID? Can I like bring a business card that shows you, hey, I am the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church. Can, like I've got some credentials behind who I am and what I'm trying to do. And so can I bring that down there with a the payment and can I do this? And she said, no, we can't take an obituary from you. I was like, oh, okay. So who can you take an obituary from? Because we really need to get this in the paper as soon as we can. And she said, well, we can only take it from a funeral home. And I said, well, ma'am, I, I understand if that's your policy, but I, I really, I, I, I don't know that, that that's going to work in this situation. And so can I just ask you, and, and I'm not trying to be a pain, but can I ask you why? That is the case. Like, why is me showing up there and being the pastor who's doing what a funeral director would do? Why is that not sufficient for you? And I'll never forget the story that she told me. The story she told me was, well, we had to adopt this policy several years before this. And the reason we had to adopt this policy was because somebody had called and submitted an, an obituary for someone who was not dead. And we published it. Because we just took them at their word that this person was dead. And so what this person then did was they took the newspaper that the obituary was published in to the clerk of court's office, one, to cash in on life insurance policy of a person who wasn't dead, and also to start the inheritance process, yet again, of a person who was not actually dead. And I was like, oh, does that happen very often? She's like, no, because we don't take people's word that they're actually dead. <laughs> Gotcha. Good to know. So it never occurred to me to run an obituary. If you're looking for a, a scheme, like there you go. There's a whole new ballpark right there. Like find somebody, run their obituary, and then claim their life insurance is what they were trying to do. And so they told me that at this point, because we didn't have a death certificate, the only one who could verify that the person was actually dead was the funeral home that had the person's body. And so until they could reach that verification, until they had this, this, this valid proof from a, a, a funeral home, they couldn't print this obituary, right? Because the will of that person and the life insurance of that person, they don't kick in until the death actually happens, right? So they, they needed to probate the will, meaning they need to validate that the death has actually occurred, right? And so as we work through this chapter of Hebrews, chapter 9, that's exactly what has to happen in the will of Christ. It has to be probated. It has to be validated. And he tells us in verse 16 and 17 that the only way that that can happen is if there is an actual death. And so in verse 16, the writer says this. He says, he makes this argument. He says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it 
must be established. And I'm sorry, I still can't read that text. I've read it like a ton of times this week, but I still can't read that text without thinking like somebody is trying to pass wheels off for people who are still alive. Then he goes on in verse 17. He says, For a wheel is only valid when people die. It is never enforced while the one who made it is still alive. And this word word that we have translated wheel in this passage in verse 16 and 17, it's actually the exact same word that we have in verse 15 and 18, except it's translated as covenant in that passage, right? So even though it sounds like he's changed and now we're talking about a covenant and agreement, now we're talking about it, he's actually using the same word all the way through. So 15, 16, 17, and 18, it's all the same word that he's using. So, uh, But before we kind of get into uh, verse 18, I want to remind you of the question that he's trying to answer, right? And the question is, how does all of this work? How does this new covenant work? How does this New Testament work? How does this new agreement between God and man work? How does it start, and, and how do we know that it's valid? Right? And so to answer these questions, he kind of puts them in this, this legal term. He says, the first way that you know a wheel is valid is because whoever wrote that wheel is dead. It's not valid until that person's dead. So if that person's still alive... You don't, you don't probate the will. You don't do what the will says. You have to wait until that person is dead, and you can validate that death. And so he says the way that you know this happens, it starts with the death, the death of Christ in this case. And his death becomes the validation and the seal of this new covenant, this new agreement. So how does that relate to the old covenant? And it starts because it's validated the same way. I want you to look with me in verse 18 and verse 19. And in this passage, he points them back to the book of Exodus, an event with Moses that we'll talk about in just a second. Verse 18, he says, That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. Why? Because blood is this seal, right? Blood is this sign and the seal of the Old Testament. It is the sign and the seal that kept the people safe in Egypt. Some of you know that story that uh, when they were enslaved in Egypt and God was getting ready to deliver them, they sacrificed a lamb. They took that lamb and they painted the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and on the top of the doorframe. And that became the seal and the sign that whoever was in that house, they were safe when the angel of death passed over them. And that became this big, massive Jewish holiday that they call Passover, which we'll celebrate just a few weeks or about a week before Easter. So this was a seal, and it was a sign that you have to trust this process. You have to trust what God is going to do. And so it became this sign and this seal for them. And then it also became this sign and seal of this covenant because Moses, after they leave Egypt, he goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, he gets all these laws, and then he comes down and he tells us in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verse 7, that he took the covenant scroll and he read it aloud to the people. Now let's be honest, I'm going to pause for just a moment. If you think my sermons are long-winded, I want you to put yourself in Israel for just a moment. Because when it says he took the, the, the laws, he takes the entire book of Exodus, or excuse me, not Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus. And I don't know if you've ever tried to sit and read the book of Leviticus. It's not the most exciting book, right? There's some cool stuff in there, and you can pick out little things here and there. But Moses literally stands up, and all the people are standing there, and he reads the entire book of Exodus at one time, right? That's it. He reads the whole thing. And then after he reads it all to them, right? So he took the covenant scroll and he read it aloud to the people. He gave them all the terms and the conditions of the agreement with God. And he gave them this chance. He says, all right, this is it. You either accept it or reject it. And then they respond at the end of the verse. They responded, we will do and obey everything that the Lord has 
commanded. They accepted it. And so the end of verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19, it says that Moses took the blood of the calves and the goats along with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll itself and the people, right? So he sacrificed the bulls or the, goat, the calves and the goats, and he takes their blood, he dips hyssop and he dips wool in their blood, and then he sprinkles the covenant, the scroll that he just read off, and he sprinkles the people, right? Now, very odd for you and me. But what he's doing is now this is a blood covenant. You have agreed to follow what this law says. And if you break it, the blood that is on it and the blood that is on you will call out for your blood. Your blood is the one who's going to be in charge. Your blood is going to be required if you break it. Unless there's a sacrifice. Unless there's a substitute. And so understand this calf and these goats that died, they are the substitute that puts in their blood for your blood. Because that's how serious this is you don't make an agreement with God when half heartedly you don't make an agreement with God thinking oh it's all right we'll just do it and if it doesn't work we gotta get out of it no this is the sign and the seal that this covenant is valid it is binding and so we start to connect the dots how does the old covenant and the new covenant relate to each other both of them are validated by a blood offering that required death the first argument our first agreement required the blood of calves and goats. This new agreement, this new covenant supersedes that because it's validated by a better sacrifice. It's validated not by the blood of goats and calves. It is validated by the blood of Jesus Christ Himself, by the very Son of God, by the one who was there when creation was made. It was there when God thought about it and God put it into action. It was, it was the, he was the one who was there when you and I were not, when all of creation was not. It is His blood now that validates this new covenant. And so how does that work? How, how does it fit? Because now His sacrificial, sacrificial death is the blood that attaches us to this. There, there is, without His death, there is no validation. There is no probating of the will. Without His death, there is no transferring of the assets from you to me. So we don't get to be inheritors of God's will. We don't get to be the beneficiaries. I think that's the real word that I was looking for. We don't get to be the beneficiaries in the will... If he doesn't die for us. We don't get the assets transferred to us. And I've got to share with you these three assets that are laid out in this passage that are just absolutely beautiful. And you're looking for a reason to follow Christ this morning. If you're looking for a reason to why you should give your life over to Christ and why this covenant is so great... I want you to look at these three assets that were within this will. These are three things that get transferred upon His death to us. The first one is eternal redemption. And we're going to back up to the passage in verse 15 for just a moment. It's in verse 15. It says, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive, get this, the promise of the eternal inheritance, because the death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, the first word that sticks out there is this is eternal. We've seen over and over and over him making this argument that the sacrifices of the, the priests that are there, they're only temporary. This sacrifice only covers past sins, and when you sin again, there's got to be another sacrifice for that, another sacrifice for that. And so the, the, the priests literally spent day in and day out doing these same sacrifices over and over and over again. Year after year after year, they went into this one special room that they could go in in God's presence, and then they could make up for, they could atone for all the sacrifices that you even forgot about. But over and over and over again, this happened. And yet in verse 15, he tells us the promise is for an eternal 
inheritance. It is eternal because His sacrifice was sufficient. It's eternal because what He did covered not just our sins from the past, but our sins in the present and our sins for all eternity future. And our sins are taken care of. They're all covered over and we don't have to worry about them here on earth anymore. They are eternal because His his sacrifice has eternal significance. His death doesn't just cover sins in the past. It covers all of our sins. It is eternal in all its works. And then he tells us that there's the redemption from the transgression. This word redemption means there's a release. There's this deliverance. I love this word. There's a liberation from. See, earlier we sang this song. And we claim that we are a child of love. And that we are no longer a slave of fear. The only reason that we can sing that song The only reason that song makes sense is because of what this verse offers us. Because there is redemption. There is freedom from what holds us back. There is redemption and deliverance from the sin that holds us, from the fear that holds us back. And for some of us sitting here, we have been held captive by sin. We've been held captive by addictions. We've been held captive uh, by by all of these things in our past. And they just keep holding us back and limiting what we do. And and we we come up to God and we say, hey, God. I wish I, I wish I hadn't done this, and I wish, and we're just held captive by this guilt and this shame. And yet the promise is that it doesn't hold us anymore. The promise is there is no fear for us who have accepted this covenant in God, and that we can approach the throne. In fact, he tells us over and over through the book of Hebrews, draw near to him. We don't have to have fear when we come into his presence. We don't have to have this shaking and trembling. We don't have to worry about these things because the bondage of sin is broken for us. His broken body transferred that ability and that power to overcome the bondage of sin, and it transferred to us through his death. And it took his death to transfer that so that we become the inheritors of his eternal redemption there's another asset that comes into play and it's called purification this is a beautiful one there's actually two in verse 22 and the first one we see is purification according to the law in verse 22 it says according to the law almost everything is purified with blood and this word purified it means just that it is washed clean. It is made clean. It is spotless. All right? Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, I, um, I typically wear a shirt underneath the shirt that I wear outside that you see. All right? So I typically have an undershirt on. All right? And we'll take this undershirt and we'll throw it in the washing machine and we'll wash it and it will be clean. Right? And it looks all right. I like, and then we hold it up to another shirt that I've been wearing for a while and it looks all right. I mean, it's clean. It doesn't have stains all over it. It's not spotted like it was when I put it in the washing machine. And then Christmas rolled around this past year. And my wife is a wonderful gift giver, all right? And so she decided what I really needed for Christmas was some new undershirts, all right? And I, at first I was like, but I got undershirts. And these undershirts are just fine, all right? I mean, they, they work, they, they're just fine. And so I took the new undershirts that I got, and I put them beside the old undershirts that I had been wearing, And then I realized how desperately I really did need new undershirts. Because when you compare undershirts to other undershirts that have been worn, they look all right. But when you compare them to something that is new and fresh and right out of the package, suddenly what we thought was clean doesn't look as clean anymore. You see, I bring that story up because the purification that is promised to us in this passage is not purification compared to other people. 
It is not purification compared to this person or that person. Let's be honest. All of us look pretty good when we walk through prison and we walk on death row, right? All of us are look like, oh, hey, I might be all right. I might not be great, but I'm better than that person. In fact, you don't even have to go to prison or death row. Some of us just get on Facebook and be like, listen, I know my life is a mess, but look at this person's life. And compared to them, I'm all right. The problem is that our standards are so low in what perfection looks like and purification looks like. We forgot that you or me or no one else in this world is the standard of perfection. The standard of perfection is what it looked like from the very beginning when everything was right. In fact, we go and see in uh, this is how Christ transfers this to us because we talked about this earlier in the chapter, in chapter 9, verse 14. It says, How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, get this, without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He is without blemish. Not to you and me, but he's without blemish before God. When God looks at him and God knows everything and he sees everything and everything that you think you can hide and every little stain that you think in your life nobody knows about, he does. And so when God looks at Christ, he is completely without blemish. There is no spot, there's no stain, there's nothing on him. And so here's the beauty of it. Because of his death... We are the beneficiaries of that. So when Christ died for us, we get His purification. So that when we are in this covenant, God looks at you and me. And you know what He doesn't see? All the stains that I put in my life. You know what He does see? The one without blemish. He sees pure and He sees clean. And He sees white or whiter than snow on a beautiful day. And He sees us washed clean in a way that we never have been before. Even before we came out of the package. Even before we were created on this earth. He sees us pure and holy. And He sees us pure as we were meant to be. And He goes on and He finishes verse 22. And He says, According to law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the last asset that we find in the wheel, this idea of forgiveness. It means that there is a pardon. There's a remission of penalty. I want you to notice there's two different ideas here. And sometimes we have this idea that when someone gets pardoned, it means they're not guilty. That's right? not really legally what it means. What it means is they don't have to pay for what they did. Right? So when someone is pardoned, it doesn't mean they didn't do what they're accused of doing. That guilt is still there. It just means that the punishment has already been paid or they don't have to pay that punishment. So with us in this passage, this is what we get. We get forgiveness. It doesn't mean that you and I are not guilty of sin. It doesn't mean that we have never sinned. What it means is that someone has already paid that debt for us. Someone has already paid for our sins. And so you and I get to walk into court guilty, but you and I get to walk out of court free because someone else has already paid for us. We don't face the judgment and the wrath of God because Christ already did that for us. He did it on the cross, and when He died on the cross, that exchange happens that He takes our wrath and our judgment, and He gives us His forgiveness. And that's why His death took my place. His death paid my debt. And so how does forgiveness work? Because His righteousness, His forgiveness gets transferred to us because He took our penalty. He took our shame. Which leaves us only one thing to do this morning. It is to finish it all and to settle the estate. 
In verse 22, it's really describing what Moses, or excuse me, not 22, verse 20. It's really describing what Moses did and what Moses said when he sprinkled the blood on the scroll and on the people. And in verse 20, he says, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And so this morning, we are setting in the place of Israel this morning. Not that we're taking Israel's place, but I want you to imagine with me that Moses has stood here and he's given you the terms and conditions and he's asking for your response. He's asking, are you going to accept this covenant or are you not? Are we going to be the people of God, delivered by God, that God had promised us we're going to be and we're going to fulfill and we're going to inherit all that God says we're going to inherit to? Or are we going to turn and we're going to walk away from it? And so in verse 20, they accept it. And he says, this is the blood that now seals you for all of eternity. And so for you and me, it's not the blood of an ox. It's not the blood of a, or excuse me, a calf or a goat. But the question is still the same. This is the terms and conditions of the agreement. This is the terms and conditions of what it means to be a Christian. It is to know that you are a sinner. It is to know that you cannot work your way into heaven. It is to know that without Christ you are utterly useless and helpless. And that you have no hope of heaven and no hope of redemption. It is a confession that without Christ you are nothing. But with Christ you are purified. With Christ you are forgiven. With Christ, you are redeemed for all of eternity. But to get here, you've got to understand where you came from. And you've got to understand that it's all His works and not yours. And so this is the terms of conditions of the agreement. Will you accept these terms or will you not? Will you accept what He has to offer you? Will you accept the purification and the, the forgiveness? Will you accept the promises of the inheritance this morning? Or will you turn and walk away from it? See, we don't get to negotiate. We don't get to argue. We don't get to try to insert our good works into it. We simply accept it or we don't. We simply get to respond either the way Israel did in the Exodus when we say we will do and obey everything the Lord commands or we don't. See, when we do that, that's when the blood is applied. That's when the blood becomes the covenant that God has commanded for us. It's only when the wheel is validated. It's only when the assessments or the assets of the wheel can be transferred through our redemption and purification and forgiveness. You see, only then can the blood command us and provide for us the eternal inheritance that we're seeking after. And so this morning, the question is for all of us sitting here. Do we accept him or do we reject him? Do you take Him for who He is, the Savior of the world, but also Lord of your life? Or do you reject Him and walk away and say, no, that's okay. I'll try to make it on my own. Knowing that to do that, you forfeit all benefits that come with that covenant there. Let's pray this morning.